Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest Mortcast, part of the CSG Network. I am, of course, your host, Jeff Morton. This is a special Labor Day edition of the Mortcast slash CSG. Um, I have an uh, interesting uh, um, thing to do today. Um, this is being recorded in advance. Uh, happy Labor Day, everyone, if you're listening to this, and if you have fine time to download this. Um, this is a uh, based in response to the new Untold documentary series, specifically the one on Tim Donaghy. And I'm recording this sometime in the week before. And uh, it's uh, it's interesting to watch this thing with the benefit of knowing that you had a an interaction with this individual um 10 years before and um one of those things in my life that I didn't don't appreciate the significance of I guess um for those of you who don't know um C- uh, CSG did an interview with Tim Donaghy in 2013 um Added to the myriad of interviews that we have done, you know, that year we also did Tim Connolly for the first time, and uh, before that we had done a bunch of other athletes and and uh, minor celebrities here in Denver. Um, so that it, it wasn't unusual for us to be doing some you know, significant interviews, but this one was the most random and uh, contextually the most weird. Um, it's, and I'll try to give you as much information as I can without divulging too much. Um, in summer of 2012, I I, wrote, I don't remember, and I wish I did, I, I wrote an article that kind of, like, if you're a Nuggets fan, you'll find time to lambast uh, David Stern. And I don't remember the context of why I had written an article, and I don't remember what I said. Um, and I looked back through the archives of Denver Stiffs to 2012, and I couldn't pinpoint the article that uh, I had written, because there was a lot of them in that year, um, specifically. But there was a um, an article written about... Tim Donaghy and uh, not not about Tim Donaghy, about David Stern and David Stern, um, and it's something that he had done. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm using what I'm trying to do right now is recall what I had written, and that's probably not important to the story. Um, so <clears throat> that got published, and I think no, it was actually spring of 2012, and then in sometime in the summer, I got an email from someone at my old email account. Uh, this is how old it was. It was a Juno account, and even and uh, even in 2012, Juno was outdated. And uh, it was regarding David Stern, and uh, that was the subject line, and it was from a guy who was claiming to be Tim Donaghy. Uh, talking about some of the things that I had written in that article, <clears throat> which was interesting. 
Um, and I'm like, okay, well, I wasn't really believing it, but he said, no, this is me. And he gave me some information to check up on the actual thing. And by Jove, it was actually Tim Donaghy. Um, and it came out of nowhere and I don't, and, and I guess it would help in the sense to remember what I wrote, but it was probably typical Nuggets fan bitching about the way the NBA treats the Denver Nuggets. And the, the fascinating part about this was he and I consistently emailed back and forth, uh, throughout the rest of 2012. And uh, it was an interesting sort of uh, dichotomy. I didn't draw any conclusions. Um, he was telling me about certain things that he had already publicly said about refs bearing grudges and using and him knowing which which ref was going to be refereeing each game. And I think I think it could have been in reference to Allen Iverson and the uh, his relationship with, uh, I believe it was Steve Javi, which um, coincidentally, Steve Javi also had a, a long-running feud with Dan Issel and Nick Van Exel, uh, which I didn't bring up to him at the time. But it was an interesting back and forth, and at the time, I didn't realize how remarkable it was because it was just... I, I don't treat anyone in the sports business as celebrities. My days of treating athletes as celebrities ended when Lafonso Ellis tore his uh, um, ACL in uh, 1994, basically. He was the last athlete I ever really had that kind of idolization of. Um, um, and um, after that, I always viewed athletes as just regular people. And, and, and now if I met a rock star or met Jimmy Page or I met any one of my heroes, I'd be gobsmacked. But um, it, it, I just don't look at things that way anymore. And I haven't um, in a very, very, very long time. How this has evolved is, is interesting because with the perspective of seeing the documentary and the documentary is called, it's a part of the untold series on Netflix and it's uh, called operation flagrant foul. Uh, and I suggest that you watch that before you listen to the interview that I'm going to play at the end of this podcast, because it will give you a little bit of con- contact from 10 years ago about Tim Donaghy and the way he talks about things because he's remarkably consistent in certain aspects. He is very inconsistent about other things. And you will find that out in this documentary. Like I said, watch it first, then, then listen to uh, the second half of this podcast and, and, and kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about here, which is, which is the consistency of which he talks about certain subjects, the way refs approach things, and probably why he was so good at um, uh, doing what he was doing. Um, He had an ability to pick games based almost entirely, almost entirely on about the ref makeup of the game and which refs had personal grudges and all this stuff. It was very fascinating how, how absolutely consistent he was at doing certain things. Um, without drawing any sort of believability about what he says about the NBA. And later in that interview that we did in 2013, Ross did ask him about a couple things. And, and Ross actually, um, Ross Martin, 
um, you will hear my old cohort, cohorts, uh, Nate Timmons and Ross Martin, and we we Ross kind of gives him good pushback. He gives him the old uh, "Why should we believe you?" thing, um, which is interesting, and I, I love that Ross did that. I mean, like listening listening to it back again, um, it was good to hear Ross kind of uh, not buy everything hook, line, and sinker because the, through the documentary. Um, and I was telling a couple of people this this week how he has a remarkable ability to be both believable and unbelievable at the same time. And I and I don't know how to deal with people like that. And in, in, in my entire time in quote unquote media, which I hate referring to it as that, but in, in my entire time in that spectrum, um, I don't think I've ever uh, encountered an individual like Tim Donaghy. Um, and you will, you've, and if anyone who has seen that documentary, you'll get the same kind of feeling that I did. There is a very, very bizarre relationship with truth and untruth that Tim Donaghy possesses at the same time. And I think he ba- basically does use people's untrust, un, you know, they're kind of since eight, since David Stern came into the league. Uh, he had the kind of the the implication that things are rigged and all that stuff, and I do think he does use that. Um, but there are things that he talked about with the way that the stars were refed, uh, which he going back to the interview in 2013, he mentioned too. Um, the the interesting thing about that is that he has been remarkably consistent about the way the that the NBA approached referees and the way that the referees would use personal animus or grudges to ref uh, certain players. Um, I don't know whether to believe him or not, because when you have someone who uh, did what they did and uh, has demonstrated himself to be shifty, um, you don't know what they're saying and whether that they're saying is untrustworthy or um, whether it was trustworthy. And one of the reasons he came on the podcast back in 2013 was he was promoting something with, I mean, the, I, I, which I didn't understand the significance and the irony of this sort of thing, but he was promoting something called refpicks.com where he would, um, give picks as a former ref. And there was other former refs that would do that. It was an interesting concept, um, in hindsight, I kind of wish that we wouldn't have promoted that. Um, it was an uh, although he did his time and uh, he was by that point free man did when did you know was free to make whatever he wanted. Um, I was still uncomfortable with the concept of it, and I'm trying not to pre get ahead of where we were with that interview because uh, we did the best we could being local podcasters in 2013 who uh, lucked basically into an interview with Tim Donaghy. Um, and my quote-unquote relationship with him, with, which ended basically right after the interview we did with him, no personal grudge or anything, it's just we didn't interact anymore, um, was a uh, weird time in my life. I don't, I, 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 I don't think I have ever been around an individual like Tim Donaghy in it, in that conversing sense. Um, it was very hard to take some things he said seriously, and it was very easy at the same time. He, the man was full of contradiction. He was, he was 
the exa- an example of someone who um, you weren't sure what to make of them as soon as they opened their mouth. And you will, this will come across in the interview that we did uh, that I'll play in the second half of the podcast. It's well worth a listen. I hope everyone stays tuned. Um, before I get to the Blanchard read, I would encourage everyone at this point, if you have not seen the documentary on Netflix, go see it before you listen to the interview. Um, but if you do listen to it before, go watch the documentary afterwards. It's an interesting companion piece from 10 years ago with Tim Donaghy talking about some of the same things we're talking that were talked about in the documentary. Um, for the record, I have no idea. Um, I tend to believe that uh, Tim Donaghy was a shifty human being who um, made his life kind of, kind, kind of specifically his professional life. Um, doing something illegal and lying about it and covering it up for a long time. And when you do that, you uh, don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt for the things that you um, mention. Uh, you certainly do not. But at the same time, the way he converses and the way he talks about it, you think about it and it has a kernel of truth. And it's hard to, and it's hard to uncouple the contradiction. And that is the point I'm making here about this. So uh, before we get to the second half of the podcast, let me talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazine, beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. They're always online at bfwdenver.com. Um, they got reds, they got whites, they got local Colorado wines. Um, I prefer the reds, um, tried their, I, uh, when last time I was in there, I tried their Merlot, it was very good. Um, I'm not a Merlot fan, but the Blanchard's was very good. But they also have that, uh, whiskey barrel finished, uh, Zin, which is very good. Now uh, it kind of packs a punch. Uh, so beware when you get that, but it's very good. It's good quality taste on that. Um, they got, uh, they don't have their 2018 Cabernet out yet, but when they do, I will let you know. Um, they got all a bunch of stuff, you know, like I said before, I don't get paid to read about these guys. I just have a good relationship with them uh, because of that time I went in there in 2019 and, um, just, just was knocked out by the quality of the stuff they had. It's really, really great stuff. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazine, beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. In the middle of the dairy block. They're always online at bfwdenver.com where you can pick yourself up a bottle, get yourself some swag, and other amenities like that. When you go in or you talk to them, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. On the other side of the break, we'll talk about Tim Donaghy, and his interview with us in 2013. All right. Up next, we got the interview with Tim Donaghy, uh, 2013. This was, uh, I believe, March of 2013. Um, thank you for all for listening to this. And before, I will not be signing off at the end of the interview. So uh, thank you all for joining us for this. Uh, please enjoy the Tim Donaghy interview with the uh, familiar voices of myself, Ross Martin, and Nate Timmons. Great. And, uh, all right, guys, we're joined now with Tim Donaghy, former NBA official. He was in the NBA for 13 seasons from 1994 to 2007. He's now associated with refpicks.com. Again, that's an online source for handicapping pro games and college sports games. How are you doing today, Tim? Uh, I'm doing terrific, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, Tim, uh, I'm, this is Jeff Morton. You and I have been conversing uh, via email. Um, it's nice to, very nice to have you on. I appreciate it, and I know uh, Ross and Nate do. Um, we, I want to kind of start off with a with a question. What have you been up to, as far as before you got into ref 
refpicks.com. Uh, how have you adjusted to life outside of the NBA? Um, anything other than, you know, anything you want to tell us as far as that goes with how you are doing right now? Yeah, I'm doing great. I mean, uh, it's well publicized. I have four daughters, which uh, keeps me extremely busy. Uh, mm-hmm. They're very uh, involved in, uh, you know, school fun- functions and athletics. So, uh, you know, they keep me real busy. I'm, uh, you know, working with a friend of mine in, in the real estate business who uh, buys and fixes up and sells houses. And uh, reppicks.com is uh, starting to really pick up, and that keeps me extremely busy at the present time. Oh, that's great. Um, I want to I want to kind of ask you this, uh, starting into to the NBA, if you're able to talk about this. Um, that we were uh, Nate and I were discussing this a couple weeks ago. We and the Nuggets played a game. The Denver Nuggets played a game against the Los Angeles Lakers about two weeks ago, I believe. And there seemed to be like a, an official who was influenced by the crowd and George Carl. It was this interesting dichotomy where. It seemed like the more that they got on him, the more he kind of like was got defensive and made calls opposite that. Was that something that you saw as an NBA ref? This kind of like this defensive, like this posture, like, you know, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm right. And they would go the opposite direction. If you understand what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. No doubt about it. And in fact, I can think back to, uh, myself and Jerry Sloan. Uh, being in a very similar situation because uh, it's almost like, uh, you, you know, you're questioning my authority out there. And, uh, you know, back when I was officiating, it was well known that if somebody rode you a little bit, uh, you know, there was one or two ways you could have went. The weaker referees bowed down to the coaches and the fans and some of the stronger referees kind of stuck it to them and, and uh, you know, really rubbed their nose in it. So uh, with that, uh, you know, after uh, – you know, certain situations, the the coach kind of lays off the referee, knowing that if he bitches and complains at him, it's kind of going to affect him and his team. So, uh, you know, that's how some of the stronger officials handle uh, situations like that. What about the opposite? What if you? What if the coach is really kissing the ref's ass? Does he get preferential treatment? Um, you know, it, it all depends on you know whether you're a stronger referee, like I said, or a weaker referee. And some of the weaker referees you know, let that affect them and, and bow down to these coaches and start to give them calls. And George Carl is a, uh, is a, is a great coach. He's a strong minded coach and he goes after referees, but George Carl's smart. He knows what referees to go after and what referees not to go after. That's kind of a good question there with George. You know, we, there's a lot of people at right in town and fans kind of point at him and say, you know, we wish that he would, get on the refs more and maybe try to, you know, stick up for his players a bit more. And you kind of brought it up there of, you know, picking out certain refs that you can do that. Is it better for a coach to pick his spots with referees and to know which referees he can pick his spots with? Oh, definitely. I mean, George Carl is definitely a veteran referee. And, and early in his career, he was on referees constantly. But I think he's uh, kind of smartened up to the, to the extent where he knows when to pick and choose his battles. He knows when it's going to certainly help his team and when it could potentially affect his team. So, uh, you know, George Carl, he's a, he's a veteran guy. He's one of the best coaches in the NBA at this point, and, and I'm sure he knows when to uh, step up and go after a referee and when to kind of back off a little bit. How about uh, how about the influence of crowds, about, you know, home crowds and, and the referees? What's that relationship like, and what can that – 
does that affect referees when they're in front of a, a very uh, loud home crowd like perhaps Utah or even Denver or whomever? Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, just like uh, when coaches go after referees, some some referees will let that home crowd affect them and some won't. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is, uh, you know, not to push what I'm doing now, but with refpicks.com, uh, I certainly take that into consideration when I look at who's refereeing the games and where the game's at and, and how that official is going to react to a home crowd if they jump all over them. And if you get, you know, two weak referees on a game with one strong referee, you know that that advantage is most likely going to be towards that home team uh, if it comes crunch time in the fourth quarter and, and the crowd's really into it. This is going to – I got a kind of a question around that. Around that. It's kind of – I noticed with Phil Jackson – when he was coaching, he wouldn't directly go after a ref sometimes either. He would go after him a little, argue, but he would let basically live and let live. But then he would go to the media afterwards and then try to influence media perception. Was there, was there kind of like this, especially in Phil Jackson coast games? I don't know if you ever had a, had a experience in this way where it's like, there's pressure that he was exerting outside that would come definitely to you from other elements after he made some sort of public statement to the, to like um, uh, complaining about refereeing. You know, no doubt about it. I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. He would plant uh, little seeds in the newspaper. He would plant little seeds in the minds of people within the NBA office because he knew, uh, especially during playoff time, that there were meetings that took place with league officials and NBA referees over what was going to be called on any given night. And uh, if he felt that he was getting screwed or his players were getting screwed, and of course he had to have the film to back it up because uh, basically he has to have proof. And if he wanted that to change in a, in a given night, he knew to put it into the newspaper or put it into the ears of league officials. And that would basically be shown to them uh, in meetings during the day prior to the next game and that whatever instance he was discussing uh, would be brought to the official's attention and the boss would go his way. Can you give us a little a uh, little bit of what it what it was like being in those officials meetings, you know, with the league and with officials after something like that? What what's kind of what what would that be like? I mean, the bottom line is is that a lot of times uh we as officials would leave uh those meetings shaking our heads saying, you know, basically the league wanted uh, a certain team to win that night because you know, they would plant the seeds in the officials' heads and tell you what was missed and what needed to be called. And at times it would certainly be a situation where one team or another was put at a major advantage or disadvantage. And unfortunately for me, I took that information and passed it along to uh, friends of mine, and and they were betting, uh, you know, on the games and and profiting uh, rather handsomely in regard to, uh, you know, their wagers. And then uh, I kind of also wanted to ask you, too, about how during your time uh, as an NBA official, how were playoff officials determined? Because, we, you know, it doesn't seem like not every ref officiates in the playoffs, correct? And it's just a, a certain set number of guys? Yeah, there was definitely, uh, you know, uh, a certain percentage of referees that made the playoffs, and it was supposed to be based on merit. But, uh, you know, it really has a lot to uh go into it based on years of experience, based on ratings from coaches and GMs and uh, league observers. So I uh, usually it took about seven or eight years to get into the playoffs. And the more experience you had, uh, the more you advanced up into the second, third round. 
I, I was going to ask, as far as various outside influences, I would say that another element that I've noticed is certain players, the way they talk to an official seems to, if they're more, dif- if they're more diplomatic, they seem to, to benefit more from that. If they are like, say like, are an old player that used to play for the Nuggets, uh, Nene, he used to whine quite a bit about calls and it seemed like he never benefited from doing that is the is the diplomatic and going to an official and and uh, explaining your point of view on a certain uh, thing does that affect an official positively with calls for the rest of the night you know no doubt about it nobody whether you're uh, refereeing an nba game or you're out in the public uh doing something else nobody likes to be embarrassed and the bottom line is if uh, you know you embarrass a referee, you know that's really not going to help you in trying to benefit of uh, you know a call that you're looking for. So absolutely, if you go at a referee in a more professional way and plead your case, uh, you know not in the view of uh, trying to get the fans to come down on the referee, it's going to work much better than trying to embarrass the referee by getting a technical foul or bringing the home crowd down on them. So uh, you know, certainly the way you go about it is definitely can be beneficial for you. Is that a problem? I mean, I mean, from the standpoint of a fan, is it a problem that these are factors at all? And why isn't it just call it as it's, call it as it's been seen, call it as it's happened? Uh, do you see that as a problem as far as competition goes, that, that there are so many different, you know, external and, you know, elements to this outside of just the way the game is played? Absolutely. I mean, what they do in the NBA is uh, they referee the names on the back and the front of the jersey rather than uh, the violations and fouls that take place. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is it's really not a true athletic competition uh, like it is in college. It's a total different game the way it's refereed and officiated in college versus the NBA, but the rules are, are fairly similar. So, you know, once you start bringing personalities uh into the forefront uh, and not, like you said, the thousand violations as they exist, it becomes a problem. And I think that's why you have a lot of fans uh, in the NBA that don't believe that it's a true athletic competition. You know, I, I, I've always been fascinated in the NBA, specifically since David Stern uh, became um, commissioner of the, the quote-unquote star treatment. And did you did you feel that as a referee? Did you feel the, like, don't give Kobe Bryant his sixth foul. Um, if Shaq bowls someone over and it really is clearly an offensive foul, don't do it because he's, you know, already got five. Is there, was there that element that was a pressure that would be put on you or kind of implied pressure of any ref to say, don't do that. They, they are not, they're the star. We need them in the game. Oh, absolutely. And I write about that at length in my book, Personal Foul that, uh, you know, there's star treatment in the NBA. And, uh, you know, I can tell you, um, as you guys being Denver Nuggets fans, uh, you know, Denver really doesn't have that marquee star player that's going to, uh, you know, get those calls in a big-time playoff game uh, that they would need. I mean, Carmel Anthony was certainly that type of player, but he's gone now. And the teams that have that type of player – uh, you know, our teams are going to really benefit come playoff time if they're in a sixth or seventh game. You know, you talk about Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant. Uh, you know, those type of players are going to get those calls at the end of the game. And is there a, you know, with the Nuggets, I mean, 
can that be overcome? Can can the officiating be overcome by a team? Like, is there a way to make that where it wouldn't even matter if the refs are you know supposedly against them or not? I mean, sure, it, it can be overcome when you're a team like the San Antonio Spurs and you're just that much talented and that much more better coach than the other team, that's how you overcome it. But if not, it's very difficult to overcome. So how would – now, I'm very – and I think I agree with kind of what you're saying, and I've seen that just as a fan, that there does seem to be – I mean, there's definitely superstars. Um, you know, superstars are being benefited. You know, as you put it, they they referee the names on the front and the back of the jersey. But if I am uh, in the NBA uh, executive structure, like a David Stern or maybe a, an owner of a team, and, and I heard you talking about that, I would say, well, that's just sour grapes, and he's pushing his his website. Yeah, you know, how would you respond to that? If somebody were to say that, and again, I, I tend to agree with you on it, but how would you respond to that type of uh, somebody saying, hey, you know what, he, he, he's just sour grapes? Uh, I would tell you right now that in my book I discuss this at length, and I'm not here trying to push my book or my website. I mean, this was well before any of this stuff came out, uh, and uh, you know, it was obvious that I was a cooperating witness for the government against the culture of fraud that existed in the NBA and organized crime, and uh, Phil Scala wrote the forward for my book, and he said that I wrote uh, uh, about the truth, and I discussed the truth with him at all turns. So, I mean, when you talk about a 25-year supervisory special agent doing an investigation and uh, supposedly informing the NBA that they need to make major changes, I think it's something to speak for itself. And those changes didn't seem to happen. And the uh, uh, controversy that you were involved in ought to have expose some of these things and it seems like it's had the opposite effect like the nba is more popular than ever which is really fascinating to me personally right i mean more people are watching the nba than ever and uh so maybe the nba and the way they're maybe they're fixing games or maybe it's not that you know outrageous you know but i don't like like to use the term fixing but they definitely put uh Teams at an advantage, uh, bigger market teams, special in certain situations. And, uh, you know, let's be honest, everyone's watching the NBA because they have the greatest athletes in the world, uh, you know, running up and down the court. You two gentlemen are, are doing a podcast generally associated with what goes on in the NBA. They have a lot of fans. They have a lot of interest, and it, it's, a, it's a great, great sport. Is there something that uh, Nuggets fans, fans like us, that we could watch for maybe within the game, maybe some subtle nuances that might tip us off, that there's some sort of favoritism going on? You know, no doubt about it. You look at uh, Dwayne Wade, Kobe Bryant, uh, LeBron James. Look at the hand checks that are called when they have the ball, and then you look at hand checks that may be called uh, when Andre Iguodala goes to the hall. Uh, you know, you're going to see the same contact that he's going to try and fight through that he's not going to get that whistle for, but you're going to see that whistle given to those guys because they want them to be able to have that freedom of movement. They want them to be able to put the big points up on the board. They want them to be able to get to the hoop uh, easier. So, you know, there are little things that you can look for. Uh, who 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 gets those calls when it comes to the hand check because the hand check really can be called uh, every play down the Open hand into the chest 
of an individual above the foul line. But, I mean, if you really look at it, it, it's done all the time, but it's really not allowed to be done to those star players. Tim, I I have a quick question about David Stern. He's about to retire um, February of next year. And do you feel, you know, I think, I believe Adam Silver, his deputy, is supposed to take over. Do you feel even after Stern retires that there will be a culture change in the NBA, any sort of positive movement toward what you would imagine to be balanced refereeing? Or do you believe in your heart that it will be business as usual? You know, I believe it's going to be business as usual. Uh, Adam Silver has been underneath the wing of David Stern for a long, long time. Uh, obviously, David Stern has been extremely successful. He's put a lot of money uh, in the, uh, the owners. and He's done a terrific job in regard to marketing uh, the league. And, and um, Adam Silver is, is a student of David Stern. So why would uh, he mess with a, a recipe that has been very, very successful? Because if he decides to make changes and the league starts to tank, that's something uh, of a legacy that he's going to have to live with forever. So I don't think that you mess with the recipe. I think you 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 keep moving full speed ahead because it's been successful. And Tim, have you had you know? Why do you think there hasn't been more you know former players or former coaches or executives that haven't come out maybe publicly? you know, against some of this stuff kind of with you, or have you, have you received people, you know, that have, that have kind of backed you maybe privately as well? I mean, no doubt about it. I think when you talk about Mark Cuban, I think he's not only backed me privately, he, but he's backed me publicly. I went to a New York Knicks game about a month ago when they played the Dallas Mavericks and, and sat right next to him. And, you know, he gave me a big hug and he's wishing me nothing but success moving forward. I think that uh, he's been an advocate of uh, uh, everything that I've written and I said for many years. And it, the bottom line is, is you know, when you when you're a fan of uh, some of these teams and, and and whether it's Denver or Sacramento, you want the same shot at winning a championship that the New York Knicks and the Los Angeles Lakers have. And that's all anybody can ask for, especially when you're sitting in uh, uh, those seats and spending an enormous amount of money. Uh, you know, the the playing field should be even for everybody, and I, I think that's all anybody could ask for. So you, you just described there, you said you, you were recently at an NBA game. You have a relationship with Mark Cuban still. What is your relationship like with the NBA now? You know, bottom line is they tried to paint me as one rogue referee and, and the guy that, uh, you know, uh, didn't tell the truth or, or kind of made up some stuff. But when you talk about the FBI being involved and doing an investigation and looking into all these allegations and for the first time in the history of the FBI, an arresting agent writing forward for a, a book of somebody and, and putting in that book that he told the truth at every turn, I think that, again, that speaks volumes for what is written in that book. And uh, I receive emails every day about, uh, you know, how that book is, uh, you know, rings so true and how it helped change uh, the way people look in and, uh, you know, discuss the NBA. That's awesome. Uh, Tim, do you have, do you have kind of a, a favorite moment of, or maybe a, some of your fond memories of being an official in the NBA or just kind of a, a funny story or anecdote for us? I mean, I, I can tell you this, um, there was a lot written about my relationship with Rashid Wallace and how, uh, <laughs> you know, we squared up in the parking lot to fight one <laughs> night and how it ended. And, uh, you know, I, I can tell you since my departure from the NBA, I've spoken to Rashid several times, 
and I can tell you that his personality and professionalism uh, is something that kind of shocked me as I spoke to him. I think his, uh, you know, intensity, uh, you know, gets him caught up in the moment when he's on the floor, but I've uh, really never talked to a more professional guy, and uh, he really is a class act off the floor. So you, you, were, you were a ref at the, uh, at the, the big brawl game, weren't you? Did yes, uh, yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, remember being a referee at the, at the brawl at the palace and it was something where, uh, you know, everything just got way out of hand and, and, uh, you know, the fight spilled into the stand. So, uh, that's definitely a, a black eye, uh, you know, for everyone involved in the NBA at that time. So, uh. Yes, I was definitely there up up front and close. Oh, I can't even imagine the chaos. I, I watched that on television, and I was thinking, I, I I can't imagine actually being there and seeing the chaos that just, I mean, not ref-induced or anything like that, just how it just got out of control. And there's very little you can do at that moment, is is can there. It's just like you just, I mean, with when it spills into the crowd like that, you've got to hope that nature takes its course eventually, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with uh, big, big, strong, strong individuals, and when you talk about a guy being 5'10", 175 pounds, you're not going to be able to stop those 255-pound uh, uh, athletes from going at each other. So, you know, it's something that, you know, you really just can't control, and you got to sit back and hope it ends quickly. And in that case, it, we all know that it didn't. All right, Tim, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit more about refpicks.com and uh, maybe about your book as well, Personal Foul, a first-person account of the scandal that rocked the NBA. Yeah, Personal Foul can be bought on Amazon.com, and it just basically takes everybody through the story of how I was able to pick the games at 70 to 80% correct uh, from you know being a cooperating witness for the, for the government and uh, basically going to jail and, and trying to survive jail and RefPicks.com is just a website uh, that um, you know guys can utilize and, and purchase picks online for as little as ten or twenty dollars if they uh, you know enjoy gambling as a form of entertainment and uh, you know just to get a little bit of an edge on on what I see and, and things that I speak about in my book that I still see today that will enable them to uh, you know put some wagers on some games and put some extra grocery money in their pockets. Well, we certainly appreciate you coming on with us, and you have been a, a great guest. And uh, you can you can basically call back anytime you want to. So, uh, um, if you, uh, Nate Ross, I think we're good. Thanks a lot, Tim. Yeah, Thank you did. very much, Mister Mister Donaghy. We appreciate it. No problems. Uh, please call me Tim, and you guys have my email and uh, hit me up anytime. I'd love to join you again. Great. Thanks, Thanks Tim. Take care, man. All right. Have a good night. All right. You too.